Good afternoon. Good evening. I'm Dove Tuzman. You're back on Equal Footing. Happy Midsummer. We're going to tackle another difficult subject tonight, one that's bothered me personally since I was a kid. Sacrifice. Animal sacrifice. Sacrifice. The blood on the altar. As a Jew, it's part of our tradition. We can't deny it. A hundred of or so of the 613 commandments or mitzvot have to do with sacrifice, a lot of it animal sacrifice, blood sacrifice, and in the original and the latter temples. As a Christian, I'm I'm not a Christian, but we have many Christian listeners, and I grew up in a Catholic country, and I know how important the ultimate sacrifice is of the Paschal Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ in that tradition. The sacrifice of Jesus is meant to be emulated in the spiritual lives of all Christians. In Islam, the last day of the Hajj is all about sacrifice. There's the feast of sacrifice, the Eid al-Adha. Some listeners know from the past that I had an epic of my life in which I lived in ashrams and studied Eastern philosophy and sacrifice, both literal and mystical, as at the core of the Hindu tradition, of the Kajmashavis tradition, even weaves its way through Buddhism for sure, self-abnegation. We've heard about that on this program as well. We've covered Buddhism, central to that faith. Okay, we've got two guests to help us unpack this complicated issue of sacrifice, literal and metaphysical. Let's start by introducing Professor David Weddle. First time on Equal Footing. Such an honor to have Professor Weddle on. He wrote a wonderful book, 2017, by NYU Press, Sacrifice in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. He also wrote a prior book in 2010 called Miracles, Wonder and Meaning in World Religions. He's a professor emeritus of religion at Colorado College. He's taught courses over his career in comparative theology and ethics, American religions, and the philosophy of religion. Professor Weddle served as chair of the uh, Department of Religion at Colorado College. He also taught at Cornell College in Iowa, where he chaired the Department of Religion there for 20 years. Professor David Weddle has served as president of the American Theological Society in the Midwestern Division. He's been active in public education throughout his career. He's a lifetime honorary member of the American Academy Academy of Religion. His current essays examine the role of, of religion in American politics. Boy, is that apropos of the moment. We've talked about that over other summer episodes. Professor Weddle lives with his wife, Sharon, his wife of 60 years in Woodland Park, Colorado. Professor, I'm going to be in Colorado next week. I hope I have the opportunity to meet you in person. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. I look forward to the conversation. (laughs) That was perfect. We had a metaphysical thump, uh, applause there. Rabbi Stephen Bars is also on tonight. Rabbi Bars has been on the program before. I love his ability to distill complex concepts and make them accessible. And this concept of sacrifice if you are paying even nominal attention to the tenets of your faith, whether you're coming from an Abrahamic perspective or an Eastern perspective, you've got to address this issue of sacrifice. It's such a core tenet. Rabbi Bars has spoken all over the world, from the United States Senate to the, the Los Angeles Improv. 
He's a regular speaker at the Fortune magazine summits, and he's the author of many books. Rabbi Bars is known for imparting important ideas with creativity, with creativity and simplicity and accessibility. You should check out his websites, getbliss.com and core9.live. He's also the creator of a highly popular motivational seminar called Think Like a Winner. And I want to also put a shout out here to his YouTube channel. You should check it out. Rabbi Bars is really a YouTube star. You can find him on Stephen Bars. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-B-A-A-R-S. Stephen Bars. It's his YouTube channel. And Rabbi Bars and his wife Ruth have seven children. Okay. Rabbi Bars. Professor Weddle, let's get into this topic of sacrifice. We entitled tonight's program Sacrificial Blood. Isaac, Jesus, and friends. But it starts way before uh, uh, Isaac, uh, doesn't it? I mean, Cain and Abel are, in in some senses, there's a there's an element of their lives which are also sacrificed. I know that we're getting a little bit of an echo on the line. Maybe we can uh, try to address that. Hopefully we'll sort that out soon. But um, sort us out here, Rabbi Bars, to, to start with. In the Judeo-Christian line, or the Abrahamic faiths, what's the first instance of sacrifice as a core spiritual concept? Well, that's a, that's a great question. It sounds like an easy question, but it's not. Um, in the Bible, Cain and Abel are the first people to bring a sacrifice. But the, the sages debate whether Adam also brought a sacrifice. So it's, a, it's, it's up to dispute who, who, uh, who was there first. So, but it's definitely a long, long, long tradition. So what happens with Cain and Abel? What happens with Yes, <laughs> that's, you know, that's a big, that's a big mess over there. Cain brings a call a sacrifice. But I think the first thing I should really mention is, uh, you know, I hate to ruin your day, but the whole concept is a bit of a misnomer. The co- there is no concept in Torah called sacrifice. It, it, it just doesn't exist. Much of what we read and understand in Judaism is coming from the translators who were Christian, who had a concept of sacrifice. But there is no such thing in Jewish thinking, in the Torah, in the Bible, as we understand, as it's read in Hebrew. Right. If, uh, fact, just as a little parenthetical, yeah. you stole a little bit of thunder there, but this, the word sacrifice comes from the Latin sacrificium, a combination of the word sacer, which means to set something apart that's that's holy uh, from something that's secular, and then fasera to make. So it's literally to make sacred, but you're absolutely right. It's not a Hebrew word. We'll get to the Hebrew etymology in a, in a moment. Yeah, I would just... Yeah, I would say for a moment that the Latin term sacrifice is itself ambivalent. It's not clear whether the one offering the sacrifice is being made sacred or is the victim being made sacred? Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a fundamental ambivalence about sacrifice that's also illustrated in the Cain and Abel story. That is, no sacrifice can guarantee its own success. There's always a certain suspense when a sacrifice is offered. Will it be accepted or not? Because Cain's sacrifice of grain is not accepted by God, right? But Abel's sacrifice of, of blood or animal sacrifice is accepted. Yes, and yes, no explanation right, right. is given for that. Well, that, uh, I hate to disagree with the professor, you know, especially being this early in the evening. But that's, 
that's not quite the right, the reading in the Torah. If you read very carefully, it, it, the Torah tells you what was wrong with Cain's sacrifice. And it's the influence by Abel's sacrifice, because a, I'm using the word sacrifice because the people would not understand the Hebrew word korban. But by, by Abel's korban sacrifice, he brought the best of his crop. And by Cain's sacrifice, it doesn't say the best. And the influence is to learn from that, that Cain brought second best. And that's why his Corbin sacrifice is not accepted. So let's fast forward now, because we're now at, at the, near the beginning of time in the story of Cain and Abel. And let's go into the evolution of, of the Israelite uh, people. And before we get to the, well, actually, let's just go right into the story of, of Abraham and Isaac. Now, this has got to be one of the most controversial and and also mystical uh, stories of the Abrahamic faiths. Uh, Professor Weddle set the stage. W- what is this about? Who is being asked to sacrifice? Is it Abraham? Is it Isaac? There's controversy there, right? Yes. There are, there are multiple controversies about the story. I mean, it's a story about a sacrifice that is not completed. It's a story which presents God as having encouraged Abraham to form the intention to kill his own son. It illustrates that sacrifice is almost always the giving up of natural desire or affection for some abstract reality, in this case, Abraham's relation to God. While Isaac is spared, and an animal is offered in his place, and so the conventional interpretation of the story is that God didn't want the sacrifice to begin with, Mm. and therefore, it was like uh, animal. Yeah, animal sacrifice would be acceptable. Mm. Now, sorry, go ahead. According to the rabbinic tradition, there is a victim of the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, and that victim is Sarah. According to the rabbis, when Isaac returns and tells his mother what nearly happened, she screams six times in the tones that would later become those of the shofar, Mm. and she dies. Mm. Now, the question is why? Did she see in Abraham a human being capable of renouncing natural affection and responsibility in order to maintain a relation with this invisible and inaccessible God? That is, does she see in him a man willing to sacrifice children for an abstraction? Now, Rabbi Bars, this gets more complicated. The the potential tragedy and the source the the the, the, the tragedy of Sarah's death gets more complicated when you assess the age of Isaac. The conventional approach is to think of Abraham sacrificing his son, but there is another reading, is there not, Rabbi, around Isaac's consciousness and willingness and involvement in his own sacrifice? Yes. You make a very good point. Isaac is 37 years old, and Abraham is 137. So 
um, there's no possibility that, that Isaac did not go willingly. He understood what was going. In fact, there's a way of looking at this that it was more difficult for Isaac than it was. For, it was a greater test for Isaac than it was for Abraham, because it's much harder to be passive in the in the face of aggression than it is to be the aggressor. And Isaac's even yes, making however, sure his yeah. father stays on point, right? Yes, exactly. Very good, because they both understood the mission. But what you really need to understand is what is the concept of sacrifice from the Jewish perspective. And, and once you get that, you see the whole concept changes. And it, it, people have a much more uh, affinity to it than you might realize. And the modern equivalent of sacrifice is what we would call a present. And I always like to, to joke, you know, it's your, it's your wife's birthday. The reasonable thing to do is to give her a hundred dollars and tell her to go figure out for herself what kind of jewelry she would like. But that's not what we do at all. The husband has to go to the store and spend countless amount of time worrying and praying and hoping that this is going to be the taste that his wife will like. Why do we do that? Because that's, that's really what the concept of a sacrifice is. We're trying to, uh, we're trying to figure out what the other person would like. And that's why we do in the marriage, in the relationship. I'm bringing you this joy because I'm showing you I understand you. Because there's an important principle in relationships is you cannot be close to somebody unless you think like them. Uh, well, this is the this is the last of the three this forms of sacrifice, the the korbanot, the, the, the where we're actually trying to get closer we're to God. But we're going to rewind after God, the next break and cover the other two forms of sacrifice because it's not quite, with all due respect, Rabbi, not quite as simple as you put out there. Participate in this discussion on sacrificial blood. Isaac, Jesus, and friends. Call 91, oh, excuse me, don't call. Don't call me on my cell. <laughs> call the landline here in the studio, 718-303-9090. Participate. Give us your best shot, question, comment, concern on this complicated exhortation to sacrifice living things in our tradition. 718-303-9090 or text a comment or question via WhatsApp or text to 917-428-4062. That's for texting, SMSing, or WhatsApping to 917-428-4062. Already see questions coming in and comments. Give it to me, Christians. I also want to hear your perspective. Muslims, Eastern uh, traditions want to understand sacrifice from those perspectives. We'll be right back on Equal Footing with Professor David Weddle and Rabbi Stephen Bars. All right, it's it's never it's never easy to build in uh, Manhattan Medical into these types of topics, but maybe that's why it's important to talk about this. Manhattan Medical's been a sponsor for Equal Footing for quite a while, and I honor them for tackling a very difficult topic and making it easier for couples to handle the painful uh, issue of erectile dysfunction. There are options out there that don't involve expensive blue pills that are often 
not accessible to folks uh, because of comorbidities and side effects. Manhattan Medical uses a new effective ED therapy called Gainswave. Listen, Gainswave's been around in Europe for a long time. It's been proven effective. It's been around in Canada for years, recently introduced to the United States. The Gainswave therapy is non-invasive. It's surgery-free. It's painless. There are no side effects. And for the vast majority of patients, enduring and wonderful results, even for patients into their 80s. Erectile dysfunction affects up to 65% of men in their lifetimes. There's no shame in having it. There's certainly no shame in talking about it and dealing with it, dealing with it. Now, you don't have to be in Manhattan. You don't have to be in New York. Anywhere in the United States, you can get a teleconsult with Manhattan Medical. Just call and mention you heard about it on an equal footing. If you mention when you call that you heard about the erectile dysfunction treatment from Manhattan Medical on the equal footing radio program, you'll get a free consultation. That's a $250 value. The number to call. 888-EDQR9, 888-EDQR9, or 888-332-8739. That's 888-332-8739, Manhattan Medical's Gaines Wave Erectile Dysfunction Therapy. Call now. I've been caught. All right, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm here with Professor David Weddles, a professor of religion emeritus from Colorado College, written a book on sacrifice and Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. YouTube star and erudite, simplifying spiritual guide, Rabbi Stephen Bars. We're talking about the complicated issue of sacrifice. All right, Rabbi Bars, I'm going to challenge you here for a moment. You talked about the concept of sacrifice as coming closer to God, but... There are two other forms of sacrifice, right? In, in, in our traditions, in the Abrahamic traditions, there's a simple sacrifice of do, of sacrificing something for, to do something better in the future for your own self, like Joseph advising the Pharaoh to, to, to store grain in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, lean years, or the idea of sacrificing something for the betterment of someone else, like when Yocheved gives up baby Moses, knowing that, you know, it's a better chance of, of survival if he's put, on on the river, so there are sacrifices that are practical, right? Well, yes. Okay, if you want to, if you, yeah, that's, that's an excellent point you're making. And in that sense, there, there, you are sacrificing, but you're not losing. It's not the classical concept of you know, chop off my arm to chop off my arm just to prove that I am I'm a good boy. That kind of concept that you see in the pagan world. Is not there's nothing like that in Torah, and the and the reason is it's very obvious because you know imagine for a minute your father's Warren Warren Buffett and it's his fiftieth birthday. What are you going to bring him as a present? You know, like, you know, a tie. You know, you could bring him a jumbo jet. So I've got three already. You're talking to God, the Creator of the universe. What are you going to bring him? A galaxy? Right, so you've got to lose something. Because there's nothing, God doesn't, as my teacher about Mark Weinberg, a blessed memory used to say, there's nothing you can do for God. All you can do for God is let him do something for you. It's oh. the same thing you go to your, to your parents. What can you do for them? Nothing except let them do for you. Right. Professor Weddle, let, let's, I, I hear you, and I appreciate I, that I separation of, of sacrifice that has kind of a, a worldly purpose and something that we're really giving up or losing to get closer to God. Professor Weddle, let's get in trouble here and talk about the anthropology. 
uh, you know, sacrifice predates the formation of the, the people of, of Israel. Uh, there's, there's an argument here that it's really, you know, paganism at work that's just kind of woven through the present day. Is there not? Yes, I would say so. In fact, the first instance of sacrifice is in the Epic of Gilgamesh. We have no idea why Gilgamesh sacrifices to the sudden god, but he does, and it seems to be a fairly universal practice. Certainly in ancient India, as I think you mentioned at the start of the show, uh, very complex sacrificial rituals involving animals, grains, other things. And the sacrifices that involve giving up one's own desires, pleasures, comfort, sex, food, all of these ascetic practices also, I think, come under the uh, the category of sacrifice. I think, in short, sacrifice is the price people pay for the benefits of religion. Interesting. So I think it's almost universal so, that we find it. Yeah, I was going to ask you at this show. We're not we're not aspiring to cover everything in in one hour, but to what extent? <laughs> right. To what extent? Uh, very quickly, is sacrifice core in or not in the Eastern faiths? Well, to begin with, sacrifice has different functions in different parts of different traditions. Uh, you can talk about the role of sacrifice in Hindu traditions, but not all Hindu traditions practice sacrifice. Uh, Buddhist traditions generally do not, except for what's called the Thunderbolt School in Nepal. So we have, we have a great variety, which means that sacrifice is not rooted in a common, agreed upon, principle within any of these traditions well there's i'm not a, sure that gets, there's a yeah gets at your question so it's it sounds like sacrifice physical sacrifice the sacrifice of a flesh uh, really is is something that is that is common in in all the major uh faiths or at least makes its way into the current day metaphysically let's let's right and go ahead and all the traditions that have a mystical strain talk about the sacrifice of consciousness or ego. So not only is sacrifice the giving up of material goods, it can also be the erasure of one's personal identity. Yeah, you know, it reminds me, gentlemen, I, I am the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, so spiritually that colored my early childhood a great deal, the combination of Judaism and and, and tragedy and confusion. Uh, my my personal journey led me to the East and in, in starting in my teens, and one of the first books I ever read was a book by uh, Swami Muktananda called Getting Rid of What You Haven't Got, and it was about sacrificing the things we don't need in order to allow for those elements of self to be occupied by a sense of divinity. And that was what attracted me to these. That concept of, of sacrifice of the ego, uh, we've talked about that before on this show. Would would you say, Rabbi Bars, that that is 
what as as a Jew and in, in speaking to that community from your perspective is what we should see sacrifice as today? Is it kind of an Eastern view? Are we really should we be focused when we're davening and praying more on the sacrifice of our of our ego or our lower self? There's a very interesting way of using the word. You're sort of modernizing the whole concept to bring in sacrifice. And, and and there's a meaningful concept to lose one's ego, but it's a process that I don't think is is going to be successful because you really need to not lose an ego but find a greater self. It's 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 sort of like you know when you first fall in love. So you don't lose an ego, even though that's exactly what happened. It's because you found the love. You found something greater than yourself, that your own self didn't matter as much. But didn't you say and, that, and, that, and the, the korban, that the, the core Jewish meaning of sacrifice and to, to get closer to God requires losing something? Well, it, it, yes, you're right. In, in a technical sense, you are losing something, but not but not do you feel like you're missing anything. It's, it's like giving up a lollipop for $1,000, and it's nothing. And the word Corbin, we're using the, the Hebrew word Corbin as sacrifice, but Rav Shimshon Raphael Hirsch points this out. The word Corbin really means, from the word Kalev, to be close. Mm-hmm. And that's what, what a sacrifice is. It brings you closer to something meaningful. And when you do that, you lose things that are not meaningful. So, you know, by, by our age, lollipops don't mean very much to us. We didn't lose it. We just grew out of it. And that's, life, that's what life is all about. And that's what, what's going on with Abraham and Isaac, is it, it, growing into a greater expression of himself. All right, now we've got we've right, got a caller got, that's been patiently waiting on line one. I think he's got a comment or a question on the Abraham and Isaac story. Let's see if we can put that caller uh, on the board. Hello? Caller, yes, caller, you're on. Yeah. Uh, number one, I want to make a comment that uh, we as a Jew are not allowed to pronounce not Jewish God name. Uh, I would say like a Christian or Catholic. So we're not allowed to say name of they got. Yeah. Okay. So you're allowed to. So it's like a taboo. You're not allowed. Yes. Number one. Uh, understood. Number two. Number two. About uh, when Isaac got sacrificed, I mean, almost got sacrificed in the name of God. Uh, the reason for it, Isaac got, I mean, he was looked like a man, but he got soul like a woman. And uh, with that soul, he would not, not able to have future. So when uh, Abraham brought him to Masbeach to almost be a sacrifice uh, in the name of God, it was a big stress for both of them. And uh, soul which Isaac got originally, he got a woman's soul. It was transformed to man's soul. Okay, so let's let's, and, let's uh, only. I appreciate, I appreciate the, uh, the question. So re- before we go to our, our, our break, uh, Rabbi Bars, have you heard this before that, that, that Isaac had a, a woman's soul and that was part of the, I guess, the rationale this caller is bringing up for, for his sacrifice? Not quite understanding, but I, I've never heard it. So I don't know. I need to turn to the expert. This is a way out concept that, um, 
what we're talking about is that the Isaac had to become passive or um or allow Abraham to be dominant and 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 Isaac had to become more of a feminine personality to go through that experience. Although I should add, in Torah thinking, Jewish thinking, it's women are the active of existence and men are the passive. But but but, but the women's expression of passivity is 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 allowing men to get their is sort of like you play this role. But nevertheless, that's I think what, what our caller is talking about here. Okay, that's. I, I appreciate the caller yeah, calling in. I appreciate your clarifying, Rabbi Bars. When we come back after our next break, I, I, Professor Weddle, I want to get into what, at least from my perspective, may be the most controversial uh, element of sacrificial blood and the Abrahamic face, and that is the ultimate sacrifice, as Christians call it, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We'll be right back. Magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name. Vilified, crucified in the human frame. A million candles burning for the help that never came. You want it darker. Equal Footing with Dove Tusman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. I've been called. We're back on Equal Footing. We're talking about sacrificial blood, the sacrificial cult, sacrifice, the core of our Abrahamic face, faiths, mush-mouthed here. Professor Weddle, talk to us about the ultimate sacrifice. Educate us on this concept and how central it is to Christianity. The uh, destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem was a catastrophe for both Jews and Christians. And they took very different ways of dealing with it. Uh, Rabbi Yohanan famously said, we don't need the temple because we have the better sacrifices of good works and devotion to Torah. And that was a brilliant move because it meant now that one could be fully Jewish fully compliant with Torah and not need the temple as the site of animal sacrifices. The Christians took another tact, which was to say that we have the sacrifice of Jesus, which brings an end to all sacrifice, uh, because he is the ultimate sacrifice that God requires in order to forgive humanity. 
The difficulty, of course, is that sacrifice did not end in the Christian tradition Mm -hmm. with the death of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, sacrifice became the moral norm for Christians who were expected to imitate Christ in this way. I would argue that the formation of the New Testament was primarily driven by an interest in sacrifice, which becomes prominent in the 3rd and 4th centuries of the Christian era. In the beginning, if we judge by the art and symbolism in the Roman catacombs, the early Christians had two symbols that they used almost in equal portion. One was the cross, the other was the fish representing the story of Jesus coming to his disciples' rescue and filling their nets with fish. That symbol points to the compassion and mercy of Christianity. The cross points to violence as necessarily associated with the relationship to God. The cross did not become the central Christian symbol until the 4th century when the Emperor Constantine adopted it. Then it began to show up everywhere, on grave yeah, sites, on think, altars, on churches. I, I feel shy to even say this with your, given your knowledge in the, in the room here, but I, I, I understand that the cross wasn't widely uh, used symbolically until even a couple centuries after that. I mean, it was introduced, as, as, as you said, by Constantine. Right. It does take a while for fashion to spread. <laughs> I think that's what happened. And that emphasis necessarily tied the cross into the Crusades and into war uh, for the sake of God. My own feeling is that Christianity might very well have been an entirely different history if it had stuck with the fish rather than the cross. Mm. But what we have, as you say, is a symbol of sacrificial blood. Now, this is as problematic morally as the story of Abraham and Isaac. Yeah, which is at the core of why we wanted to do the show tonight is the, the the complexity in both in both traditions. You know, Pope John the Twenty Third, often called the Good Pope from the nineteenth century, is famous for saying Christian life means sacrifice, and certainly in the um, in in the Protestant traditions, which are most prominent in the United States, there's a there's tremendous uh, focus on kind of the canon of sacrifice. Rabbi Bars, in in you, there was a reference there, Professor there Weddle made there, Professor after the destruction of the temple when the, the the hundred or so mitzvot that have the commandments that have to do with sacrifice become kind of in abeyance. Let's say um, there's a there's a theory, is there not, that then. Uh, our ritual davening, uh, our, our three times a day prayer, become kind of substitutes for, or is in fact the vestige of the sacrificial uh, rites and rituals in the temple. Is is that the case? And if so, is prayer our no, form of sacrifice as modern day Jews? Exactly. But again, I'm just bringing up the point. If you think of it as sacrifice, and and that's the problem is that people think that they're supposed to. Sacrifice, you know, prayer is supposed to be something you're giving up, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour of your day or an hour, depending on what service it is. 
and you're supposed to lose, you know, that, that's meant to be, rather, it's not. It's meant to be an elevating experience. And, and the language is very, very important. I, I find it very interesting. I wonder if the professor would mind if I asked this question. Well, how would, I'm fascinated to hear, what would you think would be the difference if Christianity had a fish instead of a cross? What would, what would, what, where would that go? Obviously, it's tremendous speculation. So what does that mean? Love it. Love the question. I'm not sure I got all that question. Is he asking me what Christianity would look like without emphasis on the cross? Yeah, with the focus on the fish rather than on the cross. Right. Yeah, it would look like the way the early Christian community is described in the New Testament as a group of people that lived in common, had their resources in common, sought to alleviate the suffering of others. That's what it would mean. I mean, Christianity is the... Why do you think the cross... What is it about the cross that creates a different experience? Uh, I'm a little confused about. Well, I think historically the cross gets tremendous promotion from Constantine's use of it and his attempt to unify the Christian world by warfare under the sign of the cross. Mm. Uh, That sort of historically explains things. But I think that theologically or religiously, the emphasis upon the drama and mystery of the crucifixion is so much more compelling than a kind of (laughs) form of humanist socialism, which I was describing earlier. Uh, The cross has a kind of fascination and a sense that this was the decisive moment in divine human relations. I wish in which I, from, yeah. No, finish it. Sorry. No, I mean from that Very, moment on. Right. So salvation would become available through this sacrificial blood. A lot of it, if I can just add one more thing, has to do with the Christian relation to the Jewish tradition. I mean, the language of sacrifice and its connection to forgiveness so deeply embedded in the Jewish tradition certainly influenced the Christian reading of Christ's death. You know, it's interesting, Professor Weta, listening to you talk about the cross as Constantine's kind of marketing and banner appeal. I wish I could remember who said this on this program, but uh, there was a, a guest who, who, who once told us that they thought that religion uh, was where meaning and theatricality meet. And certainly there's an, the, the, the symbols uh, are important, the, the, the recruitment appeal. We have a couple of comments quickly. We're going to go to our next break that I, I just I want to share from uh, Christian listeners. We have many fewer Christian listeners than Jewish listeners. I'm going to give them a little airtime. There's one uh, listener who, who's a self-identified Catholic um, who there's, I suspect, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but maybe, maybe you could help us with this, Professor Weddle. On the Jesus thing, he writes, I still do not know what he saved us from. Not sure we are actually living in paradise. And what would have happened if Jesus was not sacrificed? Sorry to ask, maybe I forgot. So, 
Well, I think we we do have a very early Christian tradition called the Gnostics, who very much believe that Jesus had not been crucified, that in fact Judas had been substituted for him. And their interest was that Jesus brings enlightenment. We don't need to be saved from sin. That's kind of an illusion of the material world. But Jesus brings saving knowledge. And that's what Christianity should be if Jesus wasn't uh, sacrificed on the cross. Let's take, yeah, I was going to read another Christian listener's uh, comment here. It's really about the communion. We'll get back to that in a moment. Let's take a caller who I think wants to ask or comment here on the concept, concept of sacrifice connected to martyrdom. I wish you hadn't said that, because that's what I wanted to say myself. But that's okay. This is Stan. How are you? Hi, Stan. You beat me to the punch for a change. Only, be, <laughs> only because uh, I was told that that's what <laughs> That's true. Yes, sacrifice, no matter what these general is martyrism. martyrdom. It is it totally and absolutely completely. It's about why am I doing this? Why am I sacrificing so something necessarily better for myself or better for history or better for this. It's also egotism to a large extent. Christ didn't have to die. He had an easy out. Get out of town. Get out of Jerusalem. By the way, we're going to do a program in the future. He, Wait a minute. Let me, that may let have me, been actually what happened. But let, Wait a minute. Let me, let me, you're not letting me finish. Sorry. The point is this. Okay? Sacrifice and martyrdom, it goes hand in hand. I'll just give a complete... American history, the Alamo, 186 men stayed at the Alamo knowing they would die so that Texas could get an army down the road. And they stayed, and they were killed and wiped out. And that did happen. The question is, martyrdom is a significant part of sacrifice. Okay, great question. Rabbi Bars, in the Jewish faith, is sacrifice and... It's also ego. I'm sorry. It's also ego. I'm sorry. I'm going to put that in there. Go ahead. Okay. So we'll ask both. Rabbi Bars, before we go to the break, um, sacrifice in the Jewish tradition, is it intrinsically intrinsically connected to martyrdom? And we'll get to the ego afterwards. Or is that... That that certainly seems to be a Christian uh, line of, of, of thought. But is that part of our tradition as Jews as well? No. I mean, in the Christian thinking, yes, sacrifice and martyrdom go hand in hand. They're part of the same continuum. But um, now I'm going to challenge uh, it for a second, and, and I'm going to get. Yeah. I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble here with Rivka from Borough Park, yeah. etc. But <laughs> I, I, I think don't we go through a don't whole litany of martyrs on Yom Kippur? Martyrs. I mean, there's there's rabbis yes, who get right, flayed, same, rabbis same, who get burnt, etc. It seems same, pretty. And that's our that's our Shabbaton, right? That's our holiest day. Uh, so, it, how, how is it that martyrdom isn't intrinsically connected to our faith? Aren't they sacrificing? Go ahead. They're not giving up anything. You know, um, the average mom and dad would, you know, just having a kid. You know, if you have a baby, I don't want to turn anybody off. Have children. But, you know, forget about sleep. There's there's a whole life experience that you have to martyr, if you want to use that word. You you get married, half your house is now, you know, somebody else, and the temperature set, and, the, you know, the coffee you make, and all the other things that you you, you have to give up. It's not, you know, I didn't martyr myself to my wife. Is that when you use that word, it has a, a connotation that's not, 
that's not helpful. But aren't the martyrs of Yom Kippur, aren't those actual martyrs? Aren't they kind of sacrificing their own being for our ability to hold meaning as Jews through the generations? If you, if, when you, when you use the word that way, that's true. But that's that's like saying, you know, again, it's like it's like saying, you know, I martyred myself for my kids. I I didn't, uh, you know, I could have bought a Bentley if I didn't have all the kids I had. I could have had a nice mansion. I martyred my my yacht for my kids. Right. You're not giving up. You're creating a more meaningful existence. As somebody who who dies for their children. Or dies for the country. Right, so that would be more like that would be more like Yocheved putting baby Moses. Uh, uh, the, the, because you're 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 giving you future gain. Yeah, and that future gain, and that is the greater self. Hmm. All right, we're going to take we're going to take our last break, and we're going to we're going to come back, continuing to explore this complicated topic of sacrifice. Sacrificial cult, sacrificial blood. We'll be right back. On a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand. Yeah, great song. A- Equal Footing is brought to you in part as a much easier ad to go through the Manhattan Medical, and that's a mechanical art capital. Mechanical Art Capital, great sponsor, great company, easy access to liquidity, to cat the cash value of your inventory of timepieces, of watches. You're a collector, you're a dealer, you have these high-end timepieces sitting around. Get cash. Unlock the cash value of your collection or inventory through Mechanical Art Capital or Max buyback contracts. You can get the whole thing done in a single day. Two days max. You get your watch, your watch collection or inventory appraised. That's free of charge. And then you get to raise cash, cash from those watches without it affecting your credit, without having to go through a complex uh, process with a bank. Call Mechanical Art Capital for more information. 833-209-0972. That's 833-209-0972. Or go to Mac's website at Mechanical Art Capital. Dot com or easiest go to your iPhone or Android device and just download the app and go through the easy steps. You can download the app by f- piping in the three words with spaces in between mechanical art capital. Unlock the cash value of your watch collection or inventory with mechanical art capital. I've been caught. Okay, we're back on equal footing. I'm with Professor David Weddle and Rabbi Stephen Bars unpacking the material and metaphysical role of sacrifice in the Abrahamic faiths. And we've had a couple of listeners who have written over the break. One insists that I get into the issue of blood and that this is a, a, a gory subject. I'll spare you the additional details, but I came prepared, dear listener. Here we have Leviticus 17.11. Rabbi Bars will correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is the only reference in the Torah or what Christians would call the Old Testament to blood in the context, uh, the meaning of blood in the context of sacrifice. 17.11 of Leviticus. For the life, this is the King James uh, translation in English. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, 
and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So, Professor Weddle, it seems quite important that, at least in the physical realm, that there be blood on the altar. Yes, in fact, uh, in Sunday school, we memorized Leviticus 17.11 and, of course, applied it to the Christian context. The difficulty is that Leviticus 17 runs into exact contrast with Hosea 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So there is this basic ambivalence about the value of blood. Leviticus is filled with instructions about how to handle blood and to be careful about its potential for destructiveness, which means that blood is not in any sense neutral in either of these traditions. It is an indication that the life force of the human being is being accepted or rejected by the divine reality. It's absolutely essential since blood is at the heart of our very being. Now, there's a listener who asks me to uh, ask the rabbi, uh, while we're on the topic of, of the blood, the, the literal burning of, of the flesh and why the Torah relates that, that God is pleased by the odor of the sacrifice, which is mentioned uh, several times in, in, in the Chumash. Rabbi, why is that phrase important? What is, is there a mystical aspect to that, to the Lord being, you know, smelling the pleasing odor of the sacrifice? Why is that mentioned? Well, it's a, it's a fantastic question. And if you juxtapose it with the, also the prophet's uh, in in um, uh, quoting God as saying, "I'm tired of your sacrifices that happen later on in the in the temple service." It, it's not just a rote expression of just do this and therefore God, you know, God smells the the, the beef on the on the on the you know, so like, so to speak, the beef on the barbecue, and um, it, it's rather. The, the way the people who brought the sacrifices, who brought these kubanas, how they thought about it, and that, that's the meaning of the expression. Again, I keep coming back to this, but in the same way, if you buy your wife the same flowers every week or the same present every year for her birthday, you're, you're not gonna, it's gonna become meaningless. It's the creativity that you bring to the, to the experience. And, we have to bring these animals. What, is, what, is, what do the animals do for us? Is that when we see an animal, if you ever see it like in a roadkill, it wakes us up to the value of life. Again, presence and korbanos are all about trying to think like God or think like the recipient. And one, one more question for, for you, yeah. Rabbi, on this, on this, sorry for the interruption. There, there's a listener is also asking about whether the sacrifice of the animal replaces the sacrifice of a human being in the Jewish faith. So it, instead of going that far, I guess we sacrifice the animals. Is there truth to that? hundred percent. That's a great question. That's exactly how we're supposed to be thinking about it. 
you know, anybody who's gone through a near-death experience has a new awareness of existence of how valuable life is. And we just need to do that to get our, our consciousness focused back on track. And that's what bringing an animal on the altar it, it, it wakes us up, just like going to uh, on a roller coaster or, or skydiving. Mm. We need you know, human beings just are not as cognitive as they think they are, and we need to have these experiences to get us to realize how the valuable life is. Professor Weddle, that uh, go, go ahead. That question, question that yeah, yeah the, the question that your caller asked, um, I think is is a very perceptive one. After the destruction of the temple, there were no longer animals to be offered, but every Israelite became a lamb in the flock of the Lord. And every Israelite was then expected through prayer, devotion, charity, Torah study, to become a living sacrifice. Abraham Heschel said, we no longer offer sacrifices we are the sacrifice. Mm. Yeah, and that's the the origin, right, of of Jesus Christ being referred to in the Christian tradition sometimes as the Lamb of God, right? Yes, although that that plays perhaps on some different sources, but yes. Okay, Professor Weddle, there's an interesting question slash comment from a listener that I'm going to try to condense given time here, but I, I thought it was quite interesting. Uh, this listener is pointing out that there's often a confusion as to the sacrificial tradition and the Christian tradition and how it relates to the Jewish tradition. And they're pointing out in summary that there are different forms of the actual sacrifice in, in, in Judaism. There's a burnt offering, a grain offering, a fellowship offering, a sin purification offering, a guilt offering. Only few of them, only several, I guess three of them involve animals, three or four of them, I guess, if I'm looking at this correctly. And the question this listener asks is, which of these offering traditions, which of these korbanot, which of these sacrifices in the Jewish tradition is supposed to be going on with Jesus's sacrifice on the cross, is it a sin purification offering? Is it a guilt offering? Probably not a fellowship offering. But in which tradition does it sit of those of of Jewish sacrifice? Professor Weddle, are you there? We may have lost Professor Weddle. If so, uh, maybe he's on mute and doesn't doesn't realize. Oh, it. here we are. There Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. The the answer depends upon which interpreter in the Christian tradition is understanding the death of Jesus as affecting the salvation of the world. So does Jesus die in satisfaction of God's honor? That would be the feudal, medieval way of thinking about it. Does does he die in a kind of judicial exchange between God and humanity? Does he die in order to eliminate original sin all of these different interpretations then would draw upon a different form of sacrifice. Mm. Okay, well... And I think the very, yeah. the very variety of these interpretations indicates that the Christian tradition has never been able fully to articulate how the death of Jesus brings about the benefits 
that the tradition claims it does. <laughs> right. That was that was one of the uh, callers. I love that caller's earlier comment about what was it that 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 Jesus uh, was sacrificing? Why did he die again? So okay. So let's let if you gentlemen, we just have a couple minutes left. If you could take off your incredible. Uh, your, 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 the, the hat of a scholar for a moment and, and instead exhort, I guess, our better angels. And, um, and let's, let's play devil's advocacy. Maybe Rabbi Bars, you could, you could take the position of sacrifice is important to our spiritual growth, understanding this, the physical sacrifice and metaphysical sacrifice that as, as Jews at least, it's, it's, it's critical and important. To our spiritual growth, maybe make that uh, argument in your best way possible, but only for a minute. And then, Professor Weddle, maybe you could conclude with the devil's advocacy. Why is sacrifice, as a concept, a misplaced, misplaced energy, and really should not be at the core of our spiritual life as Judeo Christians? Rabbi Bars, start us off. Well, this is purely as devil's advocate. <laughs> But um, there are things that we all do that we have to, that we would better better ourselves if we gave up. I I remember I I used to know somebody who had two cars. This is in England. And one was for show and one was for driving. And because it was for show, he never took it out of the garage because the weather in England is not not, not one for, for nice cars. So there are things in our lives that we should give up that are just not getting us anywhere. And I think we can all, and personally I've done this myself, we can all sit down and just ask ourselves the question, what one thing in our life, if we were to give up, which we're kind of attached to, it's like a security blanket, that if we give up, we could move into a new dimension and a greater life. Love it. It reminds me of the Maharishi uh, Yogi's famous statement that uh, to to sacrifice what we are for what we could become. There's so, Professor Weddle, end us with the 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 anti-sacrifice argument. Why is this all a bunch of maybe gobbledygook? Kind of misunderstood our uh, this uh, this tenet of our faith. Because what it implies about God that God requires the bloody sacrifice of an innocent human being in order to love the very creatures that he has made. This is morally incoherent. It is ethically reprehensible. And the anti-sacrifice dissenting tradition within Christianity, beginning with the Gnostics, through Peter Abelard, Horace Bushnell, etc., all of them have made the same point that the purpose of Christianity is to reconcile humanity with God. And once a human being has repented of sins, turned to a life of compassion and mercy, they are reconciled to God. Thank you. There's no sacrifice required. Professor Weddle, we're we're up on time. It's Professor Weddle, Rabbi Bars. We'll have you back. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next week. Life's always with me. The license of my face will never be
Oh 